Today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 22, 14 through 20, and 24, 28 through 35. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, good afternoon again. My name is Gene, and I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I extend to you a hearty welcome uh, for our afternoon service today. If you've been with us for the past few weeks, then, then you know that we've been going through a sermon series um, on our liturgy, uh, why we worship the way that we do. And in this series, we're, we're, ta- we're taking a look at every aspect of our worship service. And I think that one of the unfortunate consequences of a liturgy is that it can become routine. We follow the same blueprint every Sunday for worship, and it's very easy to to come to church and go through the motions that we're so familiar with. You know, when I first learned to drive, I was mindful of everything. Eyes on the road, both hands on the wheel, 10 and 2, safe driving speed and constant alertness. But now, when I drive... I'm, I'm making a sandwich, I'm brewing coffee, I'm reading a novel and doing some, some calculus proofs on the side. Too often in life, the, the more routine something is, the less thought I put into it. The goal for us in this sermon series is thoughtful and meaningful worship. We want to remind ourselves of and recover the beauty of proper worship. So we started this series off with the call to worship. Then we talked about the prayer of confession. And last week, Pastor Aaron preached a terrific message on on why and how we sing. And today we turn to a topic that is very, very important to most New Yorkers and specifically our church members. Food and drink. I was in California last week, and my friends and I, we got into this heated discussion about what city has the best food. And even the non-New Yorkers, they conceded that no one does food better than New York City. And I think it's abundantly clear on social media how important food and drink is to our exilic community. How much of our budget 
goes towards our meals with New York City prices being what they are. I'm scared to think of what some of your bar tabs look like. Well, meals aren't just important to New Yorkers, but meals are very important in the Bible. I mean, look at how the story begins in Genesis 2. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The very first command that God ever gives man, it's about food. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you may not eat. But the Bible doesn't only begin with food, it also ends with food. The tree of life in the garden, it's also in the heavenly city. And the picture of the end, it is this wedding banquet, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Meals are very important in the Bible. The most important cultural and spiritual tradition of the Old Testament is the Passover meal. And even for Jews today, it is the most important practice of their cultural and their spiritual identity. Meals are really important in the Bible. And for Christians, no meal is more important than the Lord's Supper. As we look to the Lord's Supper in our passages today, I want to focus your attention on three things. The significance of the meal, the graciousness of the host, and the expectations of the guests. Okay? First, the significance of the meal. We've just said that meals are very important in the Bible, and certainly in the life of Jesus, we're told of many important meals that either he participates in or he likes to tell parables sometimes about meals. But isn't it true that last meals and first meals in particular are especially important? Last weekend, I was in California to officiate a wedding. I, I landed at John Wayne Airport, and I picked up my rental car, and I drove straight to In-N-Out for a double-double animal style. I had looked forward to that for weeks. And on Monday, before I caught my flight home, I had some time for one final meal in California, so I had to make it count. So I drove to In-N-Out for another double-double animal style. Meals are important, but first and last meals in particular are especially important. So today, I want to look at Jesus' last meal before his crucifixion and his first meal after his resurrection. And I hope that there's a lot that we can learn about why we take the Lord's Supper today. In Luke 22, it is the famous Last Supper in the upper room. Before Jesus and his disciples, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus will be betrayed by Judas and put to death. So he tells his disciples that this is going to be the last time we will share a Passover meal together. Jesus knows that he's leaving them, so what does he do? Well, he institutes a sacrament by which they will remember him and through which he will be present with them. And we understand this, don't we? What do we do when we say goodbye to someone we love? Two weeks ago, one of our members, Jay Yang, he moved to Charlotte, North Carolina. And the morning before he left, my wife and I, we had a final meal with him. 
We, we had the meal, we said our goodbyes, and, and then we gave him a gift to remember us by. We gave him a framed group photograph that we had taken the week before. And it was our way of helping him remember us and the love that we had shared. This is what Jesus is doing at the Last Supper. He's giving his disciples a picture of himself so that they could remember him and the love that, we, that they had shared. Now, in our Instagram and selfie culture, our pictures have to be perfect, don't they? The perfect angle, perfect lighting, perfect smile. But what sort of picture does Jesus leave for his disciples? A very different picture than what we would leave. Verse 19, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. First of all, it's very ordinary. No filter, no portrait mode, bread and wine. That's it. It's not flattering at all. And if you think about it, isn't Jesus a king? Isn't he Lord? In fact, isn't Jesus king of kings and Lord of lords? Shouldn't there be some pomp and circumstance? Trumpets, fanfare, glory. Jesus refuses all this. And he chooses to be remembered in the most ordinary way possible. A basic, basic meal. Bread, wine. This is something that anyone can do. Anyone can access this. Remembering Jesus, it's not just for the wealthy, the powerful, the intelligent, the the moral exemplars. No, this meal, the poor, the outcast, the broken, the suffering, the downtrodden, the weak, they can access this. The elements are simple and ordinary so that any and all can come. And it's also true that the more ordinary the elements, the more extraordinary the things that they signify, isn't it? Let me give you an example. If, if you found a restaurant on Yelp and it had five stars with over 2,000 reviews and you go there and it's this total hole in the wall, the decor is tacky, the menu's falling apart, and, and, and they have plastic forks and knives, before you even taste the food, you know that it's going to be amazing, right? The food has to be glorious because people aren't giving the place five stars for the ambiance or the plating. Let me give you another example. Imagine you come to Exilic and we say, today for communion, we're going to try something new. All right, we're going to do this right. And uh, instead of bread and wine for the Lord's Supper, we cater food from 11 Madison Park, which is the number one restaurant in the world. And the, the, the head chef comes, and there's a special communion tasting menu, and we line up, and, 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 and we take the food. You receive the food, and it is a transcendent experience. Best Lord's Supper ever. But in that hypothetical Is it the elements? Is it the sign that you are appreciating? Or is it the things they signify? Is it the food 
that you love or is it Jesus that you are worshiping? Do you see how this works? The bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper are ordinary because Jesus will not share his glory with them. There are no distractions from him. It is a very ordinary picture. But it's also a morbid picture. Jesus breaks the bread, which he says is his body. He pours out wine, which he says is his blood. The picture of Jesus, it is a picture of his death. And again, this is something that we would never do. If you've ever been to a funeral, you, you might have seen photos of the person who has died, and there are always pictures of life, happy moments, proud moments, big smile, family, friends. It would never be a picture of the corpse. Jesus gives us a picture of his broken and bloody body. See, the Lord's Supper, it doesn't just point to Jesus' presence with us, but also his death for us. His death is what Jesus wants us to remember about him. Not a huge smile and a drink in each hand, but tears and cries of anguish and nails in his hands. Jesus' death, it is utterly unique. He doesn't die from cancer. He isn't hit by a car. He isn't um, the victim of an accident. No, his life is not taken from him, but he goes to the cross to die as a substitute for sinners. And this is what he wants us to proclaim and remember when we come to the table. This is how he wants us to see him. Let's jump ahead to Jesus' first meal after his resurrection. In Luke 24, we find two of Jesus' disciples, and they are walking on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Emmaus is about seven miles away. And these disciples, they're not part of the original 12, but they were followers of Jesus, and they knew Jesus. One of them is named Cleopas, and, and we don't know who the other is, but this is Easter Sunday, and we find them confused, disillusioned, and sad. Jesus had been crucified. He'd been placed in a tomb. Everything had unraveled so quickly for them. And they're asking themselves, how could we have been so wrong about Jesus? What do we do now? Where do we go? Are, are we next? And then there are rumors Early that morning, the women had gone to the tomb to preserve the body, and they returned with crazy stories of, of an empty tomb and reports from angels that Jesus was alive. So they're asking, could it be? Did someone take his body? Is he maybe alive? And as they're debating these questions, a stranger joins them on the road. And this was not uncommon, right? Thousands of people must have been leaving Jerusalem after the Passover. And people often banded together for protection and company on a long walk. So they don't recognize this man. And they continue their conversation. They, they assume that this man must have heard everything that took place this weekend. And Luke tells us that this man is Jesus himself. But the disciples don't recognize him. 
And it's not because the resurrected Jesus looks a whole lot different. Verse 16 says that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Jesus has, in a sense, covered their eyes so that they could not see him or recognize him. Why does he do this? Wedding season is upon us. This Saturday, I will officiate my third wedding in four weeks, all of exilic members. You know, Western tradition states that it is bad luck for a groom to see his bride on their wedding day before the wedding ceremony. Right? It's this superstitious tradition. But the difficulty in following this tradition today is that the couple usually pays a lot of money to hire a photographer and or a videographer to, to record and document the wedding. And also, you want to enjoy the reception after the ceremony, plus you need daylight for the pictures. So most of the photos now are taken before the ceremony. And the compromise is this, a special time set aside for a reveal, a first look. And I still remember my wedding day like it was yesterday, looking as good as I'll ever look in my entire life, <laughs> probably about 30 pounds lighter, facing the other way as my beautiful bride came up behind me and covered my eyes with her hands. And then I turn around and I look. And I behold her in all of her radiance. Now, if I had tried to get a glimpse of her before that moment, it would not have been as special. And I probably would have been gang-tackled by her bridesmaids. They would have covered my eyes. This is what Jesus is doing here. He's covering the eyes of his disciples because he wants to reveal himself to them in a very specific way at the perfect moment. And did you know that so far in the book of Luke, no one had seen Jesus yet. They are the first people to see the risen Jesus in the book of Luke. He's not ready yet. He's not fully dressed it's, the moment hasn't come. So how does Jesus choose to reveal himself to these two disciples? Well, on this Sunday, Jesus reveals himself not by first glance, not by sight recognition. He begins with a careful, detailed explanation of himself through Scripture. He gives them a sermon. Verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What Jesus does is he walks them through the Old Testament and he shows them how it all points to him. And I wish I was there to hear that sermon. The two disciples, they don't see Jesus, but they hear Jesus through the explanation of Scripture. And as they arrive at the village where the disciples are going, Jesus wants to move on. But they say, Jesus, please just, or they don't say Jesus. They don't realize it's Jesus yet. But they say, please stay, eat with us. And Jesus agrees. And they share a meal together. And Jesus takes the bread. He blesses it. He breaks it. And he serves it to the disciples. Verse 31. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. This is it. The big reveal. 
the perfect moment where, where Jesus removes his hands from over their eyes. When do they recognize Jesus? They recognize him through the breaking of bread, Luke tells us. And as soon as they recognize Jesus, he vanishes. The message here is clear. After the resurrection, the way we see Jesus, it's not through personal and individual encounter, but through corporate hearing of the word and the Lord's Supper, word and sacrament. This episode, it happens on a Sunday in a corporate setting, which means more than one person, and through the proclamation of the gospel from Scripture and the breaking of bread. This is what Sunday worship is all about. Our Sunday service, it is a recreation of this Road to Emmaus event. And the Lord's Supper is that point of recognition. It's not just hearing Jesus, but the Lord's Supper is seeing Jesus. It's the photograph that Jesus gave us in Luke 22. This is how he wants to be seen and remembered. And I think it's a sad reality that many Christians today, they find the Lord's Supper to be routine and unremarkable. It all feels so ordinary. You know, when we feel this lull in our faith, what do we do? Don't we often turn to Christian books or special conferences or Christian music? Now, none of these are bad things, but they're not the Lord's Supper. Not even close. I remember when I was a younger Christian, I would, I would kind of take Sunday service and the Lord's Supper for granted. And it was church retreats. It was revival meetings, conferences, and, and other events that I would really look forward to because I'm going to meet God there. Or I would turn immediately to kind of my personal spiritual disciplines, double down on my devotions, on reading the Bible on my own and praying by myself. It's so ironic that very often the last place I looked for Jesus was at the table, the Lord's Supper, where he wants to be found. You know, when we consider deeply what the Lord's Supper is, it is staggering. You know, in other religions, man brings sacrifices, food offerings, and devotions to their deities, to their gods. But Christian worship is exactly the opposite. We do not go to God. He comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We do not sacrifice to and for him. He sacrifices himself for us. We do not serve and feed him. He serves and feeds us. We come to Jesus empty-handed. We have nothing of value to bring. We come needy and broken, and Jesus gives us grace. He fills us. He feeds us at this table. You know, in verse 30, Jesus does something very unconventional. He breaks from protocol entirely. Jesus is a guest. They invite him in, and he agrees, and he's a guest at the house. And it was in Jewish custom, the guest is the one who is served by the host. But what does Jesus do when he's at table with them? He took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Jesus assumes the role as host. 
He takes the bread. He blesses it. He breaks it. He distributes it to them. This is astounding. That the Lord of the universe, he humbles himself to serve the likes of us. This is the way that it must be done. We cannot approach God We cannot ascend to God. Because of our sin, it is impossible for us to be accepted into the presence of God. Rather, God the Son descends to us. You remember that story in Exodus 3 of the burning bush? Moses sees this strange phenomenon. A bush is burning, but it's not consumed. So what does he do? He tells himself, hey, I'm going to go check this out. I'm going to go investigate. I'm going to see for myself what is going on here. He tries to approach God. But the moment God sees Moses coming, what does he do? He speaks. He says, Moses, Moses, do not come near. Stop. Take off your sandals. You are on holy ground. And then God speaks to Moses and gives him a sermon. And it says, Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. How does Moses meet God? Well, his instinct is to check it out, is to investigate, is to see. God says, nah, that's not the way this is going to work. Stay where you are, and God speaks to him from the bush. It's by hearing. And next week, we're going to hear all about the word and what that is. God comes to Moses, and God speaks to Moses, and Moses hides his face. He does not see, but he hears. We, too, meet God through hearing. Right now, we are hearing God speaking to us. We are sitting, and we are receiving God. But the Lord's Supper is so special because Jesus has provided a way for us not only to hear God through the Word, but to see God through the Lord's Supper. We don't have to hide our faces in fear, but Jesus tells us, look, take, eat. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus is a gracious host. He gives us everything, even though we bring nothing to the table. If we're honest, aren't we often ambivalent about the Lord's Supper? I mean, we do it because we should, but when was the last time, be honest, that you longed for it? Oh, next week we're taking communion? Yes! I cannot wait. Look at the first two verses in our passage. Verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffered. Jesus says, earnestly desired. It literally says in the Greek, with desire I have desired this. It's doubling, and that means it's emphasized. Earnestly desired, it's often translated in the English as lust. There's an incredible intensity of emotion here. Do you see Jesus' heart here? He's saying saying to his disciples, I've been waiting for this meal. 
I have longed, I have yearned for this moment. I couldn't wait to eat this meal with you. That's the heart of Jesus, our host. He's saying, you have no idea how much I love you, how much I want to be with you, to eat with you, to be part, for you to be a part of me. You have no idea what I'm about to do for you, to give you everything, to die. He loves you so much that he cannot wait to meet you and serve you. He can't wait to serve this meal, to meet with you and me. Is that not amazing? So how should we eat this meal? Well, we should long for it too. You know, in Luke 22, Jesus is the one who said, I can't wait. I'm earnestly desired to eat this meal with you. But in Luke 24, the two disciples, they're the ones pleading with Jesus to come and eat with them. Right? Jesus is trying to move on. They're like, please come eat with us. You see, after the resurrection, everything has changed. Jesus initiates. Jesus yearns for them first. Jesus initiates. But the response is that we can earnestly desire him. What kind of guests should we be? The answer is thankful guests. You know, many Christians call this meal the Eucharist because that literally means giving thanks. This meal is about meeting with Jesus, being reminded of his death and receiving his grace, and we do it thankfully. And yes, it's a time of reflection upon Jesus' death. We reflect on who he is and what he's done. But you know what? This meal is not just about looking backwards. You know, the original Passover meal, it was about looking backwards, remembering what happened in, 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 in the book of Exodus. But in Luke 22, what's interesting is they're eating a Passover meal, but Jesus keeps pointing forward. Verse 16, verse 18, I will not eat until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus takes a Passover meal, which is all about looking back, and he institutes the Lord's Supper, which is about looking forward to the cross, but also to the final consummation, the glorious end. The Lord's Supper, it is a foretaste. It is a preview of the great marriage feast of the Lamb in Revelation 19. You know, the meal we're about to take in a few moments, this is the cocktail hour before the greatest reception that history will ever know. Have you ever heard of uh, a chef's table in a restaurant? A chef's table is, is typically located in the restaurant's kitchen, and it's reserved for personal guests of the chef, and also probably really rich people. The chef prepares special menus for his guests who get to sit at the kitchen table and, and see the ins and outs of how the kitchen works. So imagine for a moment that you were invited to eat at a chef's table experience at a three Michelin star restaurant in New York City like, like Brooklyn Fair or Daniel as the personal guest of this world-renowned chef. He tells you right up front that he will not accept a penny from you in payment and then he personally escorts you past all of the peasants who are sitting in the dining area into the kitchen, and he seats you at the chef's table. 
and then he serves you the finest cuts, the most special off-the-menu dishes, and he pours for you the finest wine. How do you eat that meal? With gratitude. And, and, and you savor every bite and, 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 and taste as the food just melts in your mouth. Well, if that sounds exciting to you, let me tell you what's coming for those who trust in Jesus. Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9. Here on Mount Zion, the Lord Almighty will prepare a banquet for all the nations of the world, a banquet of the richest food and the finest wine. Here he will suddenly remove the cloud of sorrow that has been hanging over all the nations. The sovereign Lord will destroy death forever. He will wipe away the tears from everyone's eyes and take away the disgrace his people have suffered throughout the world. The Lord himself has spoken. When it happens, everyone will say, he is our God. We have put our trust in him and he has rescued us. He is the Lord. We have put our trust in him and now we are happy and joyful because he has saved us. This is no celebrity chef but the God of the universe who prepares a feast for you. As we take communion, as we look back to the cross, we also look forward to the feast that is coming. You know, the two disciples in Luke 24, they started off that day disillusioned, confused, and discouraged. But after the meal, they cannot contain their excitement. They say to one another, Did did not our hearts burn within us? Burn? They race back to Jerusalem to tell everybody about what they saw and learned. I want to ask you, are, are, are you discouraged today? Are you disillusioned? Are you jaded by life? Are you tired and sick of the grind? I invite you to place your trust in Jesus. Be happy and joyful in Jesus because he has saved us. And then as you come to the table, I invite you to taste and to see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this good news, that though we have nothing to add, nothing to bring, you invite us to eat and to drink free of charge, and you have given us a very special picture of you that we can see, that we can touch, that we can smell, and that we can taste. And I pray that you will nourish us through this meal, that it will empower us and strengthen us and carry us through this life. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.